Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Monday edition. That's a mailbag. We're coming off a victory over Oregon State, which clinches the Ducks into the Pac-12 championship game. And we get a rematch versus Utah. Second time in three weeks uh, that these two teams will have played each other. And I have a feeling on this mailbag edition, Eric, it's going to be two topics. One, Pac-12 championship game against Utah. Two, coaching rumors. Nailed it. That's what we've got. Um, Jared, if those watching with the fight on, that'll also factor in at the end of the show. There's yeah. some big, big, I hope so. yeah. big coaching stuff going on around the Pac-12. Also some rumors with some Oregon assistants. Um, we will start with what is right in front of us, which is a Pac-12 championship rematch on Friday. First question from at Clear Duck. What is the biggest obstacle facing Oregon in being victorious versus Utah? Hashtag odds and audibles. Thanks for using the hashtag. I think I almost exclusively pulled people's questions. I did. All six of these questions use the hashtag. If you don't use the hashtag, I won't say we don't use your question, but it certainly helps us if you do. Um, to Clear Duck's question, I, the first thing I wrote down is Utah being really good. <laughs> obstacle. Um, like it's the fact that Oregon will be facing a team that has already proven it can beat them and right. beat them soundly and has the answers to what's, you know, I think you look at Oregon this season and they've so frequently been able to kind of play up and down throughout the course of a game. We even saw it against Oregon State where the highs of it are so high and they kind of put Oregon State almost away and then they yep. make a couple of silly mistakes. It's, we already talked about the onsides kick thing. And suddenly the game's a little bit more competitive, but Oregon's able to kind of weather the storm. Utah's not a team that seems to allow you to do that. And I think Oregon saw that firsthand in Salt Lake City is, is just the fact that when Oregon made its mistakes, Utah was right there ready to, hey, you're not going to be able to convert these points into, or these uh, drives into, into points. Okay, well, we're going to go convert our drives into points. Oh, you can't get off the field on third down? Oh, we're going to go do that. Oh, you're going to have a bunch of special teams mistakes? We'll go take advantage of that. Oh, your passing attack is really off right now. Well, that's too bad. This game's over now. And so I, I think if you're Oregon, you have to play so much more clean football. Um, all the, I mean, I, I think against Oregon State, we saw a lot of my concerns, or at least the things that really snake bit Oregon against Utah, sort of, I don't want to say fixed, but corrected to the point where they weren't glaring holes with the exception of the special teams piece. Like I thought, Third down defense was significantly better. Oregon obviously was, I think, 100% in converting red zone drives into points, uh, four touchdowns and a field goal. All of that was better. The pass attack was obviously much better. Mm -hmm. So, like, I, there's some reasons to be somewhat optimistic. Um, but, again, the big thing here is Utah is going to propose its own set of problems, and it's not an easy opponent at all, as Oregon is well aware of based upon its outcome just a couple weeks ago. It's it's an interesting one. I mean, Oregon's only a three-point underdog in this game. And if I remember correctly, that's kind of what it was when Oregon went to Utah, right? Same, same thing. It was the same line, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Vegas is saying that that game in Salt Lake City was kind of an anomaly from an outcome perspective. Because if, if Vegas really felt like these two teams were widely apart after seeing them play, that line would be bigger. Um, so I, I honestly think maybe the biggest obstacle for Oregon is not playing another clunker of a game. Like, going back, is that the worst performance of 
understanding the opponent that's at hand, what was at stake at that game and how Oregon played. I, I think it's like the worst game in Oregon football history since the Washington game of 2016. Maybe the Stanford game in 2017 when Herbert was hurt and they had they got blasted. I mean, Eric, you were at that game in person, so maybe you can better uh, <laughs> compare yeah. that. But like, I, I I I honestly think maybe it's just don't play an absolutely clunker of a game, and you have to give credit to Utah. They forced some of that. They had a big part in that in Oregon doing that. Of how they played, but I, I honestly think Utah played its best game possible. Oregon played its worst game possible, and that's how we ended up with that outcome. And so, you know, if you're wanting like a, a strategic thing on the field or whatnot, it's probably when the when the plays on first down, when you have the football, and when they have the football. Utah can you know consistently got good gains on first down against the Utes against Oregon's defense. And then Oregon couldn't do anything offensively. And a large part of that was because they got behind schedule on first down. I mean, Oregon got their, their butts handed to them against Utah. Utah absolutely demolished them in every single way. I don't think that was just necessarily Oregon had a bad game. I think that Utah did exactly what they did and they game planned correctly for Oregon's lapses in offense and defense. Oregon has struggled all year to get off the field in third down. So what did Utah do? They ran, um, you know, their first two plays of every possession were usually runs or quick passes to get it a third down at shorts. Easy conversions all day long. Um, and the second biggest flaw in Oregon for, for the most part has been their passing attack, which some games have been good, some games have been terrible. And Anthony Brown was, I, I didn't think he played terrible against Utah. He had some bad throws here and there, but just given the circumstances he was going against where they couldn't get anything on the, on the ground going and he hurt himself during the game, he was fine. But that's what Utah was supposed to do, force Oregon into third and longs. And they did exactly that. They outplayed Oregon in every facet of that game. So to go to Eric's point in answering the question of, you know, what's the biggest obstacle um, – other than Utah being really good, because that's the first obstacle that has to go against. It would be a lot easier if they played Arizona this next week, but they're playing Utah. Um, Oregon has to play with the same fervor, intensity, and passion for all four quarters. Um, again, that's it's been a common trend where Oregon seems to put a team out of commission in the first or second quarter, or whatever the case may be, and then all of a sudden that team is only down a score and it's the fourth quarter, and they need a defensive stand to win the game. It's happened far too often. I mean, against UCLA, they allowed UCLA to come back in the game. Washington State up 14 to nothing, and they come back just the next quarter. Last week against Oregon State, excuse me. You know, these are, these are things that you cannot do against Utah. This is exactly what Eric's point was. Like, they're going to exploit those instances of – your team having a mental lapse, having a physical lapse where you forget to cover someone, you do whatever it is, you have a false start on second and 10 and all of a sudden it's you know second and 20. That's when they're going to take advantage. And Oregon has to, has to stop shooting themselves in the foot. Um, that didn't happen for a couple weeks as egregiously as it did for the first few weeks of the season because it was bad for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then they all came back against Utah and – that's a really bad sign 
Um, they cleaned it up a bit against Oregon State for sure. Um, but the tensions are going to be high yet again. It's going to be obviously at, for the last three weeks, I've been saying that, oh, this is the most important game of the year. Oh, this one, again, is the most important game of the year so far. And the tension is going to be high. It's going to be uh, hopefully a ruckus environment in Vegas. Um, Utah knows that they can beat Oregon. They literally just did it three weeks ago at the time. So Oregon needs to get out of their own way in order to to really have a, have a good performance against Utah. I'd add, I think the health of Oregon's football team is also an obstacle potentially. When yeah. We were recording yeah, this prior to yeah. the Mario Cristobal press conference on Monday, so we don't have updates yet on Noah Sewell, Mikhail Wright, a couple other guys that were dinged up in that game. But this is a team that's really beaten up, and I think – Obviously, Utah did what it did in that game. I think the fact that that was Oregon's first game without so many of those key receivers played a role in the pass attack, I think that was kind of collectively improved upon. But if this is a game Certainly. where you're without Noah Sewell or you're without Mikhail Wright or any other players, that frankly, it could be anyone on the team based upon the way it just goes sometimes where just players are hurt so frequently in practice and we don't even really hear about it. Um, you know, if Oregon's down a couple of key players, that could be a huge thing to keep aware of, too, just because, I mean, it's one thing to lose key players early on in the season, but you've got so much depth. Oregon's depth has already been kind of taken out of the equation in some position groups just because of our previous injuries. So if they're down a couple of these other guys, it would be very problematic. We'll have full updates on that on Tuesday's show. If, if Sewell can't play, they're they're not going to win. Like, I, I don't have any confidence in Oregon winning if Sewell can't play because he is – Probably, you know, you need Verone McKinley in the back end to, to to kind of cover up any kind of mistakes. I think Oregon could get by without Mikhail Wright. I'm not saying it would be easy. It would be extremely difficult. But Utah's offense beat the Ducks when they threw the ball with their tight ends. It wasn't necessarily their receivers, you know, just going you know deep or running these insane routes that Oregon's corners – just were getting blown up on every single time. It was the inability to cover the middle of the field. Um, and so I, you need Verone, but he's he's playing. Um, and then you need to stop Tavion Thomas. And if, if if you can't get him down, you know, two or three yards after the line of scrimmage, and he's going to consistently get four, five, six yards, you're not going to win. And I don't think Oregon can do that without Noah Sewell. We'll find out, hopefully – by the time, not hopefully, we will find out. The next time you listen to this podcast, we'll have an update on Noah Sewell. You'll probably see something written on the website um, as well before you listen to our next show. But that's a big injury, um, obviously. And he's been such an instrumental part of this defense. And if he's out, that would, as Matt said, I don't know I don't know if I totally write them off, but it's certainly pretty close. It's going to be really hard to recover from that kind of a loss, especially just because of the accumulation of injuries at that position where you're down flow, Mathis already. You know, you're just getting LeDuke back. Keith Brown's been out of the lineup now two straight weeks. They're just they're just down at that spot. So replacing him would be exponentially more difficult. All right, next one from at Drew Goalie. How much will it help Oregon against Utah to be playing at a neutral site and not at night and at elevation in Salt Lake City? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, certainly, a, a scene change helps Oregon. It could yeah. it couldn't hurt them. Um, There'll I be mean, more Duck fans at, in Vegas than there were in Utah. Hundred percent, that'll be the case. Uh, I mean, it, I still think we, we talked about this on the walk back from Otson on Saturday, um, knowing what the matchup would be. I would anticipate there's going to be more red in, and white than green and yellow probably at the 
Allegiant Stadium on Friday. I would imagine there's going to be a little bit stronger Utah contingent just based upon geographics and yeah the way their season has gone and everything. Um, I might be wrong. Duck fans, prove me wrong. I'd be great. I would be really impressive if it was the opposite. But, um, I mean, that part, that's going to help a little bit. It has to um, just because you're not – and that was a – it was a pretty raucous environment, wasn't it, Jared? I mean, it was it was packed mm-hmm. house. They were loud. They were into the game. I mean, being down on the field at the end there when the game's out of out of hand and it's not them cheering against a first team offense trying to move the ball with the game on the line. Even in, in those moments, it was it was loud down there. It was a, it was a factor. Oh, yeah. Neutral sites take away some of that. You know, it'll be easier for Oregon to initiate offense. It'll be easier for Oregon to maybe rally after mistakes. And maybe that was a part of what took place in Salt Lake City of, hey, they're making mistakes, but they don't have an opportunity to really, I shouldn't say not opportunity, but it's more challenging to kind of regroup and kind of figure things out outside of being in the locker room at half. Um, just a couple of thoughts. Uh, from a elevation perspective, are we buying? That was a big factor. That was nothing that was mentioned at all after Oregon lost to Utah. Like it didn't come up once of like, oh man, I was out of breath the whole game. Um, and I don't know exactly the difference in elevation. No, it is higher in Salt Lake City, but like, do we think, like, is that going to be a factor really? At all for either of you guys? Do you, are you guys even on your radar elevation? No. I kind of buy it. It's like whenever an NFL team goes to Denver in the first month of the season, they always are so winded and so gassed that it doesn't even like uh, Denver's always going to be a favorite, no matter how bad of a team they are. Um, I think it. I think it mattered a little bit for elevation. Um, it certainly took some time getting used to Eric, you and I know for being there, like, you know, it's just normal walks were a little bit different. Um, you're breathing a little, little heavier. Um, but in terms of if it'll help overall on a neutral site. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's the same reason if, uh, if, if Utah had come to Oregon and lost, they on, 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 a Utah podcast would probably be asking the same thing. Is it going to help on being on a neutral site? And yeah, of course, there's not going to be strictly one fan base screaming down at the opposing team. Uh, it's going to be both of them. Uh, I, I agree with you with the sense that there's probably going to be more Utah red than Oregon green at the stadium. Um, not, not saying that there won't be a lot of green there. I do think it'll be a good atmosphere overall, but it, of, of course it helps on a neutral, neutral site. It always does. This is why you have, big games at a neutral site all the time because you don't want a clear advantage to one team or the other. Um, and I, I mean, and it, and it gets rid of all like, the, I guess like the bad memories Oregon could have up in Salt Lake city. We get to go to Vegas and try to, you know, create new ones after the Vegas bowl. And what was that? 20, 2017. And I think that was the last time it was Oregon was down in Vegas. So they got a new chance, new, new stadium too. So, might as well make the most of it. I, I'm expecting it to probably be 65-35 Utah fan, just because it's a very it's. It, I'm not saying it's a very easy drive, but it's a lot shorter distance to drive from Salt Lake City to to Vegas than it is from Eugene to Oregon or from Portland to Oregon. Um, I, I guess the one wild card is. And it's also very expensive right now to, mm-hmm. to go. Rooms yeah. are extremely expensive. The one wild card I have is, is there a good contingent of Duck fan that lives in the Bay Area, that lives in Los Angeles area, that are saying, hey, let's fly in day of the game and maybe pull an all-nighter or you know, just get one night stay and then fly back Saturday morning. Like, 
is there going to be a big contingent of Duck fan that does that or or make that drive? Because that is also a drive you could do. I think that's going to be the only contingent in in this is also I, I how much did the the Utah round one kind of yes. spoil the the excitement of the season for this fan base? Because I don't think losing a close shootout game or a defensive you know contest where they lose by three in Salt Lake City would have really derailed the, the fan base interest. But when you go to Utah and you get blasted like the way they did, I felt like there was a little bit of a hangover even at Autzen at the next week against Oregon State. And there certainly was lack lack of excitement, you know, some some lack of discussion building up to the game uh, against Oregon State because of how that game transpired. So what does this fan base do are they still all in on 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 the season or are they just going to say hey let's stay home and watch it on tv we're going to be all into the game but let's save that money for maybe a rose bowl Mm -hmm. it's a thought yeah i'd love to hear from duck fans in the comments on kind of if they'll be going i I haven't i've I've seen on duck territory there has been like a roll call post where fans say they're going and whatnot there's just there looks like there's a good number that'll be making it down also yeah, I, know, I know some people that are going but i also know like yesterday i bumped into a friend and it was ah, i don't know if i really want to go now type of a discussion so maybe it's a very small you know atmosphere you know, circle size for me of of where that's at but i'm curious yeah no i'm with you yeah we've definitely seen people also suggest what you said the the financial part and just the Flights being all Matt, we talked about it on Saturday's show. <laughs> you could basically fly in on Monday and you spend the whole week in Vegas, or like not even get there for kickoff. So yeah, uh, options were not not great. I'm personally flying PDX to, to Las Vegas and getting in the day before, but there wasn't an option out of Eugene, unfortunately. The first time I'll have to do that for a couple of years. All right, third one from at Sco is life with reports of Joe Moorhead leaving, and in parentheses he he writes wishing him the best. And I will also say that uh, this follows Sunday's report from several outlets that he will potentially and is at least a front runner to take the Akron job um, as a head coach. He was an assistant there for a while back in the 2010s. Um, he will be coaching in the Pac-12 title game. This was my first and only concern. Hashtag odds not So Sko is asking if Moorhead's coaching in the Pac-12 conference championship game. Well, he is scheduled to speak with reporters on Tuesday. That would be Oregon reporters at the HDC, so in Eugene. I think that's a pretty clear indication you don't send a coach out there to do that if you don't expect him to coach in a couple of days. So I would say it's pretty clear Joe Moorhead will be Oregon's offensive coordinator for at least one more game. Now, it gets very dicey if you get into bowls. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the typical trend is it's kind of a little bit of a coin flip, maybe more towards the coach focusing on his next job and kind of getting all of Especially with signing day coming up and trying to make sure his 2022 class at Akron, if that's where he ends up going, we're putting the cart ahead of the horse a little bit here because it's not finalized. It's all um, kind of rumor and innuendo, but it seems like it's pretty legit. There's some legitimate reasons to expect this will happen. But, you know, you typically you, there, are, there are coaches that say, hey, you know, I, I'd rather go get started at my new job, kind of get all my ducks in a row there, quote unquote. Um, and you, there's the the you know, the other group that will say, no, I'd rather finish at my school. There's unfinished business here. Oregon's having a really special year. Let me coach the Rose Bowl. If they make the Rose Bowl, let me coach whatever the other bowl is, whatever, you know, um, and then I'll turn my attention fully. Um, I think there's obviously more questions here about what he does for a bowl game than he does about the conference championship game. It would be utterly stunning if he doesn't coach this conference championship game. 
Unless yeah. either of you have heard anything that leads you to believe that that's inaccurate. No. I mean, he hasn't even taken the job yet. Exactly. So, like, I mean, that, that statement right there could be cold, you know, freezing cold take, whatever, in that time this podcast is up. True. Or when you listen to it later on Monday afternoon. But he hasn't taken the job yet. So that's the first step. And then secondly, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty common that in these types of situations, they're gonna they're gonna do both jobs. That's what Arroyo did in the build up to the Rose Bowl, mm-hmm. is he, he did both jobs. And um, it's very rare you see coordinators um, or you even see head coaches kind of like what Lincoln Riley did not finish things out um, unless the school says, no, we don't want you at, at this school because you're leaving us. I don't think that would be the case. Or I think Oregon would be, we want you, we expect you to fulfill um, the rest of this season before you leave to go to Akron. And it should be a good thing that, that this is happening. If it does, you know, some people have already tweeted at me. It's not a good thing that coordinators are lasting two years at Oregon. Yes, it is. It's, it's a really good thing because you're winning. And success means people are going to come and try and take some of the people that are developing that success to to replicate it at at their school. If you're not winning, people aren't going to want your, your coaches. And, you know, someone referenced how Aliotti was a coordinator at Oregon for 14 years. And that was, you know, awesome. And, And that was cool, but those days are gone and people need to get used to, you know, your top coaches being here only a few years. And I think we all kind of expected Moorhead, like three years kind of felt like best case, perfect scenario playing out. Yeah. Two years being more realistic. Oh, hundred um, percent. The, it's just the modern trend of going to a job that excites you more because you have the opportunity. And clearly coach Moorhead through his two seasons at Oregon has shown enough for Akron to look at him as a number one candidate for their head coaching vacancy. Um, and credit to him. He's done a great job. He, I, I wasn't sure if he'd ever go back to being a head coach, but he clearly wants it. Um, Akron is a little close to where he grew up from. So it's much closer than Oregon. That's for sure. Um, but he's done a great job in Oregon. Uh, I'm, I, I, if, if he accepts a job, I'll be a little sad because I wanted a full season of him and, and potentially Ty Thompson just to see what that would look like. Um, cause that seemed to be his guy. Um, but I, I was going to bring up the, the Marcus Arroyo thing too, where he, you know, took the job at UNLV, but stayed with the team and, you know, coached in the Rose Bowl, coached in the Pac-12 championship game. Um, I fully expect, obviously I fully expect coach Moorhead to coach during the Pac-12 title game. Uh, I also expect him to coach during whatever the bowl game is. Um, I think it's a little different in terms of, going to Akron rather than Lincoln Riley or Billy Napier going to uh, USC and and, and Florida. Um, Those are mildly more important recruiting positions. So I think that's probably a reason as to why those guys might leave early and not finish up the season. Uh, No disrespect to the Akron Zips, great program. But I I think that Moorhead would be – I don't know, he's, he seems like a, a stand-up individual and someone who would actually finish the season through with Oregon and coach in whatever the bowl is that they go to. All right, before we jump to the next one, I just want to reading between the, like, the lines here. Do we think this is a positive development in terms of the long-term future of Mario Cristobal at Oregon? 
Because if he was going to, if there was concerns he was going to, yeah. do you think Joe Moorhead would be looking at Akron? Because I would assume he'd be at least an internal candidate of some sort. Yeah, that's a really good point, Eric. I, I hadn't even thought of that. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us expected Chris Ball to leave, but this is kind of a clear indicator. Like, he would not take this job if he felt like Crystal Ball was leaving because you're right, he would be – he probably would be the logical answer. If they're going to go internal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if – the Oregon job would generate a lot of interest, but – I also kind of think he would still probably be at least a top three guy in in the mix. Well, I brought it up. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I think Oregon will go external. I think they're a big enough job where they could get a a, a better coach than Morehead as a head coach, but keep somehow keep Morehead as offensive coordinator because I think that's where he's best. It's just Oregon has a history of, and maybe this is where they, they break it, but of, of hiring, of promoting from within internally. You've seen him do it over and over again. The only one that wasn't was Willie Taggart, and that didn't play out great. I know you just look at it the last decade of coaches. It's over and over and over again. It's two decades of coaches. It's, that's what they've done. I'm not, I'm not arguing that is the only way they would operate. That's just the first, one of the first things my mind thought of was, well, there goes number one internal candidate. So if Mario is going to leave, they're going to have to do it differently. We'll yeah. see. Right. Just a thought I had. All right. Um, this is one last one on the Moorhead situation, and then we'll jump to a couple of other questions around the conference. Um, and then a little, uh, the last one's a pretty fun one. But from at Chris Ross, what impact do you see Moorhead's reported move to Akron having on the 2022 recruiting class? Hashtag. Thoughts uh, notable. It's thought it'd be good to bring it back to recruiting. Signing day here is yeah. somehow like two weeks away. Like we're almost there. Um, so get ready for a lot of signing day information and, and interest. We're going to have a big recruiting visit weekend over the weekend. We've got stuff on DuckTerritor.com breaking some of that down. Um, toss it over to you, Matt, here. What do you anticipate, assuming this happens? Again, we have to be clear. This is not set in stone, but it seems like it's headed in this direction. Recruiting impacts. I don't think it really impacts much. Um, I don't think any of the receivers bounce. I don't think any of the, the offensive linemen bounce, um, tight end bounces because a direct correlation of Joe Moorhead leaving the program. Now, Tanner Bailey, that could maybe be one in which that opens the door a little bit because Bailey knew Moorhead pretty substantially prior to committing to Oregon because Moorhead recruited him when he was at Mississippi State as the head coach there. Um, they had a really good relationship. Um, this was kind of Moorhead's guy. Um being the fact that Bailey's from Alabama, maybe he does decide to, to stay a little bit closer to home or maybe he follows him to wherever Moorhead goes. Um, but I think that would be the only one that would really make uh, some kind of sense to maybe immediately open things up. And even then, I kind of don't think it would happen. Um, maybe this, maybe the Moorhead departure, maybe it, it leads to a transfer though from one of these quarterbacks currently on roster um, depending upon who they hire to replace him. Maybe the offense takes a change again. Um, and one of the, the guys currently on the team says, you know what? Like I'm not happy with how things have played out so far. This offense is changing again. And, you know, I, I, I want to go somewhere else um, because 
Ashford and Butterfield were recruited to Oregon by Arroyo and then saw him leave after signing. And then the offense came in with Moorhead. And then they're now going to be potentially being involved with their third different coordinator in three years at Oregon. Um, that I think that could maybe happen. One of those guys says, I'm, I, this is too much craziness. But the rest of the class, I don't really expect it to really fall apart at all. I mean, Oregon has recruit, recruits a way that no coach really impacts things. And um, I don't think really any of these guys – are Joe Moorhead only recruits? No, I, I don't really anticipate this having too much effect on the class of 2022. Um, Tanner Bailey, that's a that's a good one, Matt. I can see that becoming a thing. Um, I will say, I mean, if you're in the class of 2022 and you're committed to Oregon, are you really going to decommit and go to Akron again? No offense to our good Akron Zip fans out there who listen to the pod all the time. You know, <laughs> great, great action team. Um, but, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't anticipate Robbie Ashford and Jay Butterfield, um, who held plenty of Division One Power Five conference uh, offers, scholarships, all of that good stuff. I couldn't anticipate them, you know, transferring and going to Akron. Um Again, Joe Moorhead seems like a very quality, upstanding individual would probably put the pressure on one of them to, to join him in Akron. Um, I just think for a lot of recruits and a lot of players that are currently on Oregon's roster, the best thing to do going forward is either to stay with Oregon or you know, transfer to another Power 5 school. Um, Akron will sure give you playing time uh, and give you Wednesday night exposure and maction on ESPN, but I'm not, I, no, 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 this is probably not the best idea. One last thought I had just on, and you guys talked about a little bit about transfer at quarterback. I, I do think depending upon who the new offensive coordinator is and what kind of a scheme and offense they run, like yeah. if it's a significant yeah. change and you're looking at an offense going from being what it's been under Moorhead where it's kind of like an RPO spread team to maybe a more traditional pass. Maybe it's a pass happy offense. I could see like one of like one of, you know, one of these guys going, man, I, this doesn't really fit what I was sold. This isn't the offense I was told I would be playing in most recently. Suddenly we're doing something that's not really fitting my skill set. This is solidifying a transfer. I still would anticipate that you see most of these guys play through spring, though, just to see where they're at, especially with the new coordinator. Because it could have been a deal where, hey, the old quarterback coach, who, by the way, was Joe Moorhead, really had a feel that Ty Thompson was the guy or Jay Butterfield right. was the guy. I'm just hypothetically speaking here. And new coordinator comes in and goes, well, actually, for what I want to do, I actually see player X or Y or Z as a better fit. So there could certainly be – this could impact, I think, the future of the quarterback position going forward. I agree with you both saying it seems unlikely that one of these guys just follows Moorhead to Akron before going through spring ball, though. I would think that would be kind of short-sighted on, on their site, and then we'll see what happens with, with Tanner Bailey. One thing of note, if Moorhead does leave, um, there's two options for what Oregon does. They promote internally Jim Mastro or Brian McClendon um, or Alex Mirabal to become hmm. mm -hmm. the offensive coordinator. And then they go out and they hire a quarterback coach. Or the offensive coordinator, coordinator that they hire has to be a quarterback coach. He has to have experience coaching as a quarterback because they don't have anyone on this roster right now that can coach quarterbacks besides Nate Costa. And 
Acosta cannot be an on-field coach unless he gets elevated to offensive coordinator. I mean, they could, or or they elevate Mastro, I would say Mastro, to OC, and he coached Mastro coaches running backs and is the OC, and then Nate Costa gets elevated to QB coach. Um, I think if they were going to elevate Mastro to offensive coordinator, would have already happened. And they've gone through you know two offensive coordinator right. cycles where they could have just promoted Mastro. I, now, yeah, I don't think they do that, but those no, are their options. No. Like, right. they, they either promote someone internally and then go hire a QB coach, or the offensive coordinator has to be has to have a background of coaching quarterbacks, which when you start looking around the country and you look at coordinators, you're going to find guys that are receiver coaches. You know, that was that was Matt Lubick at Oregon um, under Helfrich. Uh, you, you'll find guys that are tight end coaches, um, offensive line coaches. So Mario and, Criswell was. Yeah. Mario was OC line coach. Yep. And so you're going to need to find somebody that's got a QB background, which which shrinks the talent pool a little bit. No, those are good points, Matt. Um, McClendon also been an OC most recently at South Carolina. It didn't go very well. And he ended up at Oregon. Um, don't know if that's a real fit unless he's really proven. Maybe maybe he's had a hell of a job the last couple of years here of being like, man, he is. he's going to figure this out. And maybe they promote him. But I kind of agree that they probably look externally and, and kind of go from yeah. there. And if you can, if, as Matt said, if you can do just basically replace the duties Moorhead's been coaching, which is OC and quarterback coach in one hire, it's probably the best route, to be honest with you. It's the, it's the most seamless one. The other thing I would think of is um, – if someone like Bobby Williams were to retire, or there was a, a, another coach that wasn't retained. You get a little bit more creative in terms of how you want to go about doing this. Um, next one from at Mr. Massinger with the new USC hire, who is, by the way, Oklahoma's Lincoln Riley. This is a pretty big deal over the weekend. Really big hire for the Pac-12. Are there any recruits you see becoming out of reach that were otherwise within reach for the Ducks? Hashtag odds and audibles. Just open it up in general recruiting talk, Matt. Also, like, I think just the second part, are there Oregon commitments that you're now worried might end up at USC because of this hire? Um, I mean, this is, this is a potentially conference shifting move here. This is, this is USC. Went out is. What's that? I think it already is. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it USC went out and, and got one of the big boy young coaches. Like they didn't go out and settle. And, and that's, I think even a week ago, there was a sense that, Oh, I think Matt brought up maybe Dan Quinn's name or something was attached. Yeah. They went out and got like, the biggest of the baddest. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge hire for USC and we'll see how it plays out, but recruiting implications. I know um, Kevin Coleman is a recruit that Oregon and USC are both yep. on. I think there's quite a few others that Oregon obviously recruits a lot of similar players, but like, what's the fallout here from your perspective matter? Are you, are you concerned by this? Is it, is it more a 2023 concern than a 22 concern or kind of where your where's your head at? It's probably more of a 2023 concern. I mean, USC would be stupid. I mean, Riley would be dumb not to call McMillan and be like, hey, look at my offense. Do you, do you see what I did at Oklahoma? I'm breaking that here. Um, but he's already told Greg Biggins that he's 100% locked in, doesn't really care, is not going not gonna to listen to pitches. He, he's going to get a pitch. I, I, I would be shocked. Yeah. But McMillan's already come out ahead of time and said, no, that, that's not happening. Um, I would expect – Riley to call Jalil Tucker and Jalil Florence at San Diego down at Lincoln High School in San Diego. Um, but much like McMillan, um, I don't think 
that happens. I don't think they flip. Grace Halton, another guy. I don't think that that's a flip that happens. Um, I do wonder about Darius Clemens. I do wonder about Kevin Coleman. I do wonder about Josh Connerly, Jr., the five-star offensive tackle from Seattle. You know, those are guys maybe that USC comes swooping in and says, hey, look, Josh, Oregon's already got Kelvin. Come come be our 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 bookend offensive line commit for this class. Go to Kelvin Coleman. Kevin, they've already got McMillan. They've already got a couple other guys maybe in the wings here. Come be our our bookend commitment here. Um, maybe a Zeke Berry who's trending to Michigan, but maybe it's a hey Zeke, don't leave the state. Come down to SoCal. Get away from home, but still be in SoCal. Don't mm-hmm. go to Michigan. Be come here. Um, I. I, I think his impact probably is going to be more on the, the few guys that are uncommitted right now that are considering Oregon. And then more importantly, the 2023 guys. And then honestly, like the, the, the commits that they have in this 22 class for Oklahoma, like mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if he brings half of them, you know, a lot of the, the, the Cali guys have already decommitted. It's not going to be a shock to me if in a month's time. They're, they're committed to USC. USC is going to finish with a really good class, is my guess. It'll challenge Oregon for best in the Pac-12, is my my expectation. Go ahead, Jared. Oklahoma's already lost four commits. Yeah. And most of them have already been uh, crystal balled on 247sports.com to Oklahoma, including Malachi Nelson, five-star quarterback, and Raleigh Brown, who's a five-star running back. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the only issue that Lincoln Riley has going forward here in recruiting uh, for the class of 2022 is the early signing days on the 15th of December. You know, that's a lot. uh, That's that is not a lot of time for him to make a new relationship with a recruit on the West Coast and convince him to go to Oklahoma. Um, He's a good recruiter. He's always had the the name backing of Oklahoma behind him and why you should commit to the school that I coach at Oklahoma. He now has it at USC. Um, I don't think it will be hard at all for him to come to recruit for the next however many years he's at USC. Um, it's going to be a little difficult this year just because he doesn't have time. If he got this job, uh, obviously it would never happen, but if he got this job like a month ago, he would be just raking up Southern California. There would be no, it would be a really hard for a lot of kids to say no to that, including all the wide receivers and cornerbacks down there. Um, this is a monumental shift in the Pac-12. Um, they have USC has been a dumpster fire last six years. I think that's putting it nicely. Um, conference as a whole is better when USC is good. This is a very good change for them. This is a very good change for the conference. This could be a move where you now have a, a USC team who's viable for the playoffs every couple of years. Um, which is huge because that is the biggest name brand team on the West Coast. Yep. Oregon has done a great job the last few years of becoming that team. But when USC is good, there's nobody who comes close. You know, that, it's, like the, it's like they're in Alabama of the West Coast. And that's good for the conference. That's good for Oregon. Um, it'd be better for Oregon if Washington could get their stuff together and figure that out because they're another name brand team on the West coast. Um, but overall, I think it'll be a lot of fun to watch, uh, just the, the recruiting of USC in the next couple of years, uh, the next you know, two or three weeks of their recruiting and how they're able to pull 
couple five stars from here and there. Um, it's just going to be hard for them to make immediate connections and relationships with kids when they only have two weeks and they have to move everything over from Oklahoma and they have to, you know, Lincoln Riley has to make coaching decisions. Um, I still think they'll do just fine. But I think most of the guys who do commit to USC are going to be former Oklahoma commits who just already have a relationship with the staff, with Coach Riley, and it's just going to be much easier for them to make that transition than build a whole new relationship. I, I do think this isn't going to be a a one-year flip, though, for Lincoln Riley. Like, USC, they are so bad in the trenches on both sides of the football. And I don't think they have a good running back on the team this season. Um, I think their tight ends are lacking. And their defense has just been bad. Like, this, is a, this isn't a job where – it's, hey, they've got all this talent and it's poor coaching and all of a sudden they're going to flip the switch with better you know, scheme and better adjustments and better development. It's going to take time. They're gonna, they're gonna, he's going to need a year or two to get his guys in. Transfer portal will accelerate things a little bit, but I, I just don't look at USC and say, with Lincoln Riley now calling the shots in 2022, they're the Pac-12 favorites. I just I, – I don't, I don't see that. Oregon has – cornered the market on offensive linemen out West. And even though USC has a rich, a a much better tradition of winning than Oregon does, they're going to have to, they're going to have to work really hard to unseat Oregon as the premier location on the West coast for offensive linemen to go to. It's not going to be in in my eyes. It's not going to be just a switch of a, of a you know, light switch for, for USC to all of a sudden get all these guys again. All right, let's wrap it up here with a question from at Nash Duckaneer. The team won't be looking ahead, but we're going to because it's a podcast. The question, should Oregon win the Pac-12 championship again this year and get back to the Rose Bowl, who would you like most to see them face against and why? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. We're looking at Big Ten schools. I think those are the only answers we're accepting here. Um some of this is obviously going to – not some of it. It's going to come down to what happens on Saturday between Michigan and Iowa for who's going to be playing in this game. Um, I kind of want a scenario where it's Ohio State, though. Um, yeah, 100%. Which is like no, – No other answers. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's kind of the only answer because um, I really don't want to see Oregon play Iowa. Um, I think that would be a blast, actually, to bookend a season like that. The talk all year since Oregon won – in Columbus has been, but are they really better than Ohio State? And now they get a chance to prove it. And more again. than likely, again, <laughs> but they get a chance to prove it. And in theory, would be closer to full health, even though they've lost you know, players since that game. But they will be returning some players. Mario's talked about that for bowl season. There are guys that could get back to health. Um, I don't know. I would love to see this matchup. I, I hope it's what happens. It's actually one of the very first things I thought of and even maybe turned and said to Matt after Oregon beat Oregon State was, gosh, if they can get to the Rose Bowl against Ohio State, that would be just like a really fun way for this year to end and would kind of further that rivalry. Plus, also, if they win that game, it totally changes the narrative going into 22 of Oregon beats one of the Blue Bloods twice in a season, right at the beginning, and then also to close the season. You go into the offseason, obviously there's going to be changes. We think there's a new offensive coordinator at Oregon. We know there's going to be a new quarterback. We know Kayvon Thibodeau's gone. 
going to be probably half a dozen other key players that go pro or decide to transfer or whatnot in this offseason. The roster won't be identical, but mm-hmm. a win like that always gives you a bump or two in the perception of the rankings going into the offseason. And I think a win over Ohio State would be more impressive than really a win over an Iowa or I don't even think it's an option. I don't think it's an option for it to be Michigan, really, because I think if Michigan loses, I would yeah. go to the Rose Bowl. And if Michigan wins, they go to the College Bowl playoffs. So I don't think Michigan uh, The Big Ten, the way they send their next team, um, so if Michigan wins, it then goes to the next highest-rated team in the College Football Playoff rankings from the Big Ten. That's how the Big Ten does it. Um, so that would more than likely be Ohio State. I have a hard time seeing – um, any of the other schools dipping below the Buckeyes. M- maybe Michigan State somehow finds a way. I don't know. Not possible, probably in my eyes. But that head-to-head was so lopsided, though. Yeah, that that's how that's how I look at it. Is I mean that's that's how not how I look at it. That's how the Big Ten does it. So it's it's either Iowa or Ohio State to the Rose Bowl. Um, I actually would rather see would rather see Iowa um, because I don't think. It matter. It matters who you beat in the Rose Bowl. It matters that you win the Rose Bowl. And I, I, I we've seen Oregon play Ohio State this season. It would be an awesome rematch. But I think there's a, a better possibility and a probably a more likely scenario that Oregon loses to Ohio State than it does um, to, to Iowa. And I guess that could be interpreted as like, hey, or you know, I'm saying Oregon's scared of playing Ohio State. No. I, I'm not saying that. I, I just look at it as the best path to a Rose Bowl victory and to be able to go out on the recruiting trail and say we've won the Rose Bowl two of the last three seasons um, is is through Iowa. And plus, I I like new teams. Um, Oregon's played Ohio State this season. They've played Ohio State in 2015 in the national championship game. They played Ohio State in the 2010 Rose Bowl. I've seen these t- these these teams play. I don't know the last time Oregon's played Iowa. I think it was 94, I think. Um, but it's been a while. And I like, I like, I always like new opponents, the, you know, opponents you haven't played, you know, in a long time. I have to disagree here. I think an Oregon Ohio State Rose Bowl would be ideal, it'd be perfect. Um, all the, the, you know, the whole narrative of the season is like, yeah, Oregon beat Ohio State, but can they beat them later on in the year after they're a different team? Well, this would be another chance. And obviously, Oregon has to win the Rose Bowl, in order, or excuse me, has to win the Pac-12 championship game in order to get there. But, you know, Ohio State's a damn good football program. Um, I think this is would be a really good eye test game, too, just visually appealing. We have to consider that always, the uniform games. Um, but it's also two name-brand programs, two teams with name-brand players on both sides of the ball. And I, I think that would be just the most fun way to finish off the season. Um, regardless of an Oregon win or, win or loss. I think that would just be as good of a Rose Bowl game as you can get. Um, no disrespect to Iowa, but I, I don't want to play Iowa. Um, but disrespect obviously, But, uh, yeah, sure, I'll disrespect Iowa. They're, <laughs> they're a lame brand of football. It's no fun. 
Um, oh man, but, we, people in Iowa hate us. Iowa State fans think we're jerks. Iowa fans think we're jerks now. Anybody in Iowa, they, I would say, think you guys are jerks now. No. In Iowa, the Hawkeye fans can think I'm a jerk, which is go. fine. I was already mean to Cincinnati this year, so that whole <laughs> Midwestern area, they don't like me. Akron, you were mean to Akron earlier on this podcast. You just mean, you know, I gave the no disrespect to our good Akron Zip fans out there, but uh, sure, maybe the entire state of Ohio doesn't like me at this point. But yeah, I think well here here I am gassing up Ohio State. I think it'd just be a really really good matchup. Um, yeah, I, Ohio State's a lot of fun to watch. Um, they got killed against Michigan with the ground attack, so I think that could be another advantage that Oregon could have. But I think it still, regardless, would be such a fun game to watch. Oregon yeah. and I have played three times, Matt. Most recently, ninety four. Oregon won by a lot of points. Just to just to kind of finalize that thought you had, go ahead. I don't want it to sound like I don't want to play Ohio State. I think that would be a fun game, and it would be probably the biggest game outside of the college football playoff um, from a fan interest perspective because of all the discussion throughout the entire year. But I just look at it as what's the easiest path to success, and and that's through Iowa, not Ohio State. But do you want the easiest path to success? Because then everybody else can realize that that was the easiest path to success. I don't you care want to face the hard teams because this is the Pac-12 narrative. Sure, but all that matters is, is that you won the Rose Bowl, not who you played to beat in the Rose Bowl. Like everyone doesn't focus on, oh well, in 2015, you know, that 2015 and in, in 2011, Oregon beat Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. It was Oregon won the Rose Bowl in 2011. It was Oregon beat a Russell Wilson-led Wisconsin team in the Rose Bowl. I don't think it's that. I think it's literally just they won the Rose Bowl. It doesn't really matter. I mean, when Stanford beat TCU in the Rose Bowl, no one talks about that, like that it was TCU. Um, it's just Stanford won the Rose Bowl. And I, I, I think it's better to win than it is to – than against Iowa than it is to potentially get blown out in the Rose Bowl by Ohio State and say, oh, we played a much bigger name, a bigger brand, um, uh, maybe the game of the year outside of the college football playoffs, but you lost by 40, or not by 40, but you, but you lost by by four touchdowns. And this is the true Ohio State team, and, and you're, you know, fair or not, this is who you are. When in reality, Oregon's pretty banged up right now from that week two game. I'd still like to see Oregon Ohio State personally, just because it sounds like it'd be cool. But I, I I understand your point of yeah. I mean, sure, it's easier to beat Iowa. I think that would, that's a very winnable game. Um, it, I would imagine Oregon would be favored against Iowa and a pretty significant underdog against Ohio State based on the Vegas lines and how I would perceive perceive them. If it's, if it's who's the easier win, it's it's Iowa. But if it's who's the more fun matchup, it's Ohio State. And sure. I get the different things there a little bit. <clears throat> All right. It's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for submitting your questions until we talk to you on Tuesday with a uh, better idea of who's playing for the Ducks, what this matchup looks like against the Utes in the Pac-12 championship uh, after we speak with Mario Cristobal. Until then, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.